Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you've been listening to the show, you know we just had our friend Katie Golden from Creature Feature on, uh, I think it was the episode right before this one, uh, where we talked about teeth with, with Katie. And that was a lot of fun. But Robert, I couldn't stop thinking about teeth. Oh, yeah. I mean, teeth are weird. Teeth are <laughs> wonderful and strange and grotesque. Uh, I was actually just at the dentist yesterday for a checkup, and I just kept thinking about just how weird it is that I that I just regularly go to this place and pay another human being to reach into my mouth with special instruments and clean my weird bone-like jaw protusions. Uh-huh. You, the outside bones, outside yeah. bones. <laughs> Never forget your teeth are outside bones. They're bones that you wash. Oh, this uh, this from uh, Kimmy Schmidt, right? Yeah, Titus Andromedon sings that song. <laughs> I think he's auditioning for like a chewing gum commercial. Uh, but he's actually wrong. I'm sorry to say, despite how much I love that moment from the show, teeth are not outside bones. They are not bones at all. They're a totally different thing. We can explain that in a minute, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll, let's go ahead and get into it. So, yeah, our teeth are bone-like in many respects, uh, yeah, but they are not bones. So just for an example, bones are composed of calcium, phosphorus, sodium, and other minerals, uh, and, and, but mostly it's the, the protein collagen that forms the living, growing collagen framework in bones. Mm-hmm. Bones have impressive regenerative powers. You break a bone, uh, it can even like a, a really vicious break of a bone, and it can heal back. Yeah. Uh, Also, bone marrow produces red and white blood cells. Teeth do not have bone marrow. Instead, they have dental pulp. Mm -hmm. So teeth, on the other hand, are, you know, they're composed of calcium, phosphorus, and other minerals. They're harder than any bone that we have in the body. Really? Yeah. But they also lack the regenerative powers of bone. So if you crack or break a tooth, you're going to need at least a root canal, if not a total extraction. That is kind of strange. That seems... I wonder what the the evolutionary reason for that is. I would expect, uh, you know, there would be a strong pressure on the ability to regenerate teeth. Well, it depends on how th- – this really gets into like the bigger questions of, of biological mortality, right? Like uh-huh. what do you need your teeth for? How long uh, are you going to be a viable organism? How long do you need to live, right. uh, you know, in order to accomplish your genetic mission of, uh, you know, reproduction mm-hmm. uh, and so forth? And, and you know, the evolution's not really concerned with uh, long-term dental health beyond that point. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe we don't need teeth because, um, well, for one thing, we're not like sharks, right? We're not just like biting indiscriminately into whole organisms and, you know, cross bones and stuff like that. We we tend to, if we're eating an animal, we kill it before we start mm-hmm. biting into it. Uh, so, you know, you, you would be able to have the time to seek out the soft parts to bite into. Yeah. And uh, so you're not using your teeth in a kind of like violent, fast-moving kind of way like a lot of other organisms would. Yeah, and, and it really drives home one of, one of the key and I guess kind of obvious things that we're going we're gonna to touch on here and there is that as, as organisms evolve, mm-hmm. their teeth are going to change to meet the demands of their diet. Right. And if, if, you're, if you do not need your robust teeth of old anymore, well, those, those teeth are going to change. Right. Uh, and you're going to end up with a, a dental model that is going to be more in keeping with what you're actually going to use your chompers for. And it's funny, you could think of teeth in a way as a, a, a form of convergent evolution. So like the same way 
that you see uh, wings evolving independently in mm -hmm. different lines of animals. It's not that everything on Earth that has wings evolved from a common winged ancestor. So wings arose in one case in insects and then they separately arose in you know, mammals, they arose in bats and stuff, mm -hmm. and then they separately arose in the dinosaurs that became birds, and then right. also in the, the other, the flying reptiles. Oh, yeah, the pterosaurs. Right, which yeah. are not dinosaurs, but also independently evolved wings. Right. Uh, so, so you see winged flight evolving over and over, despite the fact that all these organisms don't come from wings of a common ancestor organism. I mean, I guess if you go far back enough, they all do have a common ancestor, but it didn't have wings. Right. Um, and you can see a kind of similar thing in different things we call teeth. That, you know, lots of organisms have an opening of the alimentary tract. They've got a mouth of some kind or another. And it, it just often happens to be the case that organisms evolve a need to mash and crush and cut things that are going into the front of the alimentary tract. And that's how you get these different evolutions of things that are like teeth. Uh, and there, there are a lot of different things you might call teeth and not all are evolutionarily related to the calcified structures we see in animals like ourselves. In fact, one great example of, of a whole different kind of, of tooth world uh, that I was thinking about just recently is uh, it reminds me of this controversy over the mouth of a Cambrian predator that I, uh, I have been calling Anomalocaris or Anomalocaris. I just found out that some people pronounce it Anomalocaris, and hmm. now, now I feel like my whole world has been turned on its head. I don't know which to say, but I think I'm going to keep saying Anomalocaris, even if that's wrong, for the sake of consistency. This is, a, this is basically, if, if you've ever been to a natural history museum, you've probably seen a representation of this, uh, this this prehistoric fish. Yeah, I mean, well, not a fish. Well, fish-like organism. Yeah, the, this uh, long predating fish. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Cambrian period, of course, you know, roughly 500 million years ago, it's the, the first time in the history in the fossil record of Earth where we suddenly see this explosion in diversity of animal body forms. You know, before this, there were animals and most of them had soft bodies and leave very little records, but there were things like worms of various kinds. Um, but, but then suddenly around the, the Cambrian period, you see all these different life forms emerging and a lot of the life forms have hard shells. This is where you see the explosion of trilobites. It's sometimes thought of as the age of trilobites, which are these scuttling, you know, almost like insect or crab-like creatures that would move along the bottom of ocean floors and have these hard shells on their backs. But Anomalocaris or Anomalocaris uh, appears to have been the top predator or one of the top predators of the Cambrian period, uh, which was, and it was this lobed swimming predator that grew up to about six feet long. And when the fossils of Anomalocaris were first discovered, paleontologists thought that they were actually looking at two different species because it's a mostly soft-bodied organism. So its entire body usually doesn't get preserved or doesn't get preserved very well. And since most of their bodies are these soft parts that don't get fossilized usually, there were really only two parts of the body that paleontologists kept finding. These two parts were, first of all, these little pairs of shrimp-looking things. They, they would come in pairs and they would kind of have these curved shapes and they, I mean, they looked like shrimp shells. That's the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. 
And that's actually where the name of Anomalocaris comes from. Uh, Anomalocaris means, you know, anomaly and caris means weird shrimp or unusual, <laughs> unusual shrimp. So you'd have these pairs of shrimps. And then the other part that they would often find would be these circular rings of hard-looking plates. Now, the shrimp-looking things, we actually, fi- we actually figured out that these two different things actually were different parts of the same organism, this Cambrian predator. And so the shrimp-looking things, it turned out, were curly, we think, feeding tentacles that were on the underside of the head. So you'd see this thing swimming along. It's got the eyes in the front. And then sort of as a mouth, it's got this like, you know, two-lobed mustache of shrimp tentacles that we think probably could kind of like grab things and push them toward the mouth parts. And then the mouth parts would be the other part that gets fossilized, that ring of plates. That's the mouth. That's a sort of halo of teeth, like a tooth-lined sphincter of death. I mean, really, that's all a mouth is, is yeah. that it is the, um, it is the anti-anus. It's the other, the <laughs> other side of the organism. Yeah, just uh, imagine like, it, like an anus that's just surrounded by a circle of teeth that move inward. Right. And as we've discussed, uh, we, had a, we did a whole, at least one whole episode on the evolution of the anus. Mm-hmm. And of course, you didn't always have two openings in organisms. You had organisms that had to depend on one um, orifice for both functions. So. Right. Which is amazing, though, though we're not saying that's the case with an No, no, case. not at all. We're just sort of uh, demystifying the difference between the anus and the mouth. <laughs> Actually, I don't know for sure whether Anomalocaris had an anus or not, but I'm pretty sure it had an anus. Surely I, if I had to it, guess, it had some form of anus, right? It, it had a, I, I, I would have to guess it had a one-way digestive system. Right. I mean, though, as we discussed in those episodes, there are organisms that do not right. or come to not have an anus. Uh, you know, sometimes an organism in a, diff- a certain phase of its life no longer has to worry with defecating or Mm. has come to a situation where it cannot defecate anymore and uh, we'll just have to live with it. Yeah. Certain varieties of scorpion that have lost their anus uh, because their anus was on what, uh, like a third or fourth segment of uh, of their tail, which they jettisoned uh, to escape a predator. It's a very sad scorpion story. Uh, But to the Anomalocaris mouth, so from what I can tell, there's actually still scientific disagreement about those mouth parts, about that sphincter of death, about that ring of teeth pointing inward. So it has long been assumed that uh, Anomalocaris preyed on trilobites in one way or another. But how, right? Trilobites have these really hard protective shells on their backs. And some paleontologists thought, well, maybe the Anomalocaris would eat them by attacking them right after molting when their shells would have been soft. Or maybe it would attack them by like scooping them up with its little feeding shrimps, the feeding tentacles, and then cracking or prying off the shell somehow with those rings of plate-like teeth in the mouth. Uh, But I've read criticisms of this model coming from the last decade or so, basically saying that some current models of the Anomalocaris mouth show that it just would not have been strong enough to crack through trilobite shells. Mm. And may- maybe it had to feed on soft-bodied organisms like jellyfish or worms instead. I don't know if the idea of eating trilobites right after molting would get around this problem. It might or it might not. Um, so did the Anomalocaris actually have this this crushing sphincter of deadly teeth or not? I, d- I don't know if we know the answer to this right now. This seems like a, a still open question. I mean, obviously, it did have these plates. It did have these mouth parts, but we don't know how strong its mouth was. Yeah, it is just so weird to look at a representation of these because it's like a, it's it's the it's the sphincter of death, like you said. But it's also this feeling it's that it's like a teeth. It's like teeth made of broken glass. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it's it's very strange to uh, to look at. 
Yeah. It was originally thought when people found the mouth parts in isolation, so it would mm-hmm. just be this ring of plates and they didn't know it was the same organism as the, the pair of weird shrimps, they I think originally thought this might have been some part of a, of a like weird old jellyfish. Mm. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will continue to explore to explore the weird wide world of teeth. All right, we're back. So another thing, uh, you know, we, we were saying, of course, again, that teeth are not outside bones. Uh, as great as the song is, they're not bones at all. They're these hardened structures. And one question is, where do teeth come from? Like, what is their evolutionary history as we know them? And the current evidence indicates that the earliest known teeth evolved uh, – and I guess this would be different than like the Cambrian sort of mouth plates. This mm-hmm. would be like uh, teeth in jawed animals, you know. Uh, the, the, the earliest known teeth evolved not as adapted bones because that's where you sort of think, right? You think, well, you know, you had some bone structures and over time those evolved into tooth-like shapes. So parts right. of the bones would be coming out of the jaw and doing that. But actually – it looks like the earliest teeth evolved not as adapted bones but as adapted fish scales. Oh. Uh, I was looking at a paper from Biology Letters in 2015 by Martin Rooklin and Philip C.J. Donahue uh, called Romandina and the Evolutionary Origin of Teeth. Uh, basically finds evidence from a species called Romandina stellina, which is an extinct placoderm. And a placoderm – is a type of armor-plated ancestral fish from more than 400 million years ago. One placoderm you've probably seen fossils of before is the awesome, the terrifying Dunkleosteus. This is another superstar of, um, of a sort of, of a prehistoric creature um, exhibits in museums. Yeah, you look up a Dunkleosteus uh, cast or a Dunkleosteus skull. I mean, it's Chomp City, just mm-hmm. unbelievable. <laughs> and they got huge. Imagine this gigantic fish with this Chomp City head. It, it is definitely something out of a movie. Oh, yeah. Well, like why we keep making all these shark attack movies. They need to make a, a, a movie about this. You can call it Dunkles. Like a monster <laughs> would, be, would be just named Dunkles. I like it. Or just dunks. 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 <laughs> dunk, dunks. Dunk, dunks, dunk, dunks. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Greenlight it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, in the study, X-ray analysis of fossil remains of this fish. Uh, again, this is not Dunkleosteus. This is a different placoderm, uh, Romandina stellina, showed that scales evolved first. The fish scales evolved first and then teeth evolved in this line of fish as an adapted type of scale cell along a structure called the tooth plate. Mm-hmm. And isn't it weird how scales became so many different things? Like bird feathers evolutionarily are adapted from ancestral reptile scales. Mm-hmm. Scales over time grew into these, these filaments and things that eventually became feathers. But it's also thought that mammal fur and mammal hair are adapted from scales of a common ancestor. Well, I mean, they've, they've had time, right? I yeah. Mean, that's, that's one way to look at it. And it seems like teeth are another example here. In these fish from 400 million years ago, it looks like teeth are coming out of the adaptation of scale cells. Now, as we, uh, you know, we're, we're going to go ahead and jump in the time machine and go, uh, you know, go, go, go forward in time here. And, you know, it's easy to sort of fall into the trap of thinking, okay, certainly, especially when we get into mammal teeth, 
we're basically talking about the same scenario in any given organism, right? Uh-huh. I mean, yes, your, your dog's teeth don't look quite like human teeth, but there are a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. A cow's teeth don't look exactly like a dog's teeth, but there are a lot of parallels, uh-huh. you know? But then again, as we know from our conversation with Katie, I mean, beaver teeth just chuck the boat over. Right. And another one that really chucks the boat over uh, are the uh, are, are the, the the teeth of elephants hmm. uh, and their extinct kin? Uh, b- because when when you look at an elephant or a mastodon or a mammoth, first of all, they are polyphyodonts rather than uh, uh, diphodonts, uh, meaning that they're cy- they cycle through teeth their entire life rather than depending on a mere two sets of teeth. Oh, okay. So more kind of like sharks. To an extent, uh, okay. basically, like with a human, you have you have two sets. You got that first set, those baby teeth, and you get those adult set, mm-hmm. uh, the, the adult teeth. And you got to make that adult set last because those are the ones that are supposed to take you to the grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the elephant, it's a different scenario. Uh, there's still a limited number of teeth. It's not just teeth forever, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's but it's also just a totally different um, like way that they grow. So you have long ridges of teeth that move not from bottom to top. You know, like when you think of like a, 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 a child, a young child about their, 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 they lose their baby teeth and then those adult teeth grow up yeah. out of the jaw. They're like down down in the jaw and then they load up to the right, top. Right, yeah, or, or, down, or you know, they, they come down and they come up out of the jaw, right? Yeah. Well, it's in, great to see those like cross sections of the jawbone oh, yeah, with the grotesque. baby teeth still in there is, is disgusting. It's like how could you ever look at a child the same way again? But with elephants, you have long ridges of teeth that move from back to front. Wow. Along upper and lower jaws, lowly, uh, slowly wearing into a shelf at the front as the roots are absorbed. So segments of the worn teeth, and these teeth are, are oblong-looking things too. Uh-huh. So basically they, they, they just move out of the back of the jaw along to the front of the jaw, and then they break off in sections, sort of like a, a Pez dispenser. Or one way I like to think of it, it's, it's kind of like a Toblerone bar. <laughs> Each elephant tooth or mastodon tooth is a Toblerone bar that gets worn down, and as it reaches the front, segments of that Toblerone bar just fall out. Mm-hmm. And then in the back of the jaw, new fresh teeth are growing out. Uh, you know, growing out of roughly the same place, you know, where your wisdom teeth would be located. So this alone is crazy. You know, most animals have vertically grown chompers, uh, but uh, elephants and the the kin of elephants essentially have six sets of molars that that replace over time. Hmm. So basically the way the cycle goes is that uh, uh, they have, uh, you know, one set of molars at birth, uh, and they keep those for about, uh, they lose those after two years. Then they get a second set, lose those at uh, six years, and they get a third set, a fourth set, a fifth set, and a sixth set. And then the and in rare circumstances, they'll get a seventh set of molars that come out of the back. But then... That, that's how you know you're dealing with like a real silverback. Like, well, you know. it's actually one way that, um, that, that scientists are able to age the remains of elephants. Huh. Like you find uh, the, the remains of the jaw, and you can look and you can see... You can learn a lot from it. If it's a, a different type of elephant kin, you know, if it's a mammoth or a mastodon, you can you can study exactly what kind of foods it was eating based on what those teeth look like. Mm-hmm. But then, if it's a particularly old elephant, um, well, look, I'll say first, let's if, say if it was a uh, you know an adult el- elephant that w- wasn't too old, then you would see like the worn teeth, and then you would see in the back where fresh teeth were growing out. Okay. But then in the an older um, adult elephant that's on its last set. 
the hole in the back of the jaw, uh, uh, the back on, on each side of the jaw would be closed. It would have just become solid bone again because it is on its last set of teeth and those are the teeth that are going to take it to the grave. I can't remember if you already said this. Are the teeth – is it born with all these teeth already there or do the teeth like generate over time? They generate, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're not already loaded back there. Um, So these are also – these are known as – it's known as hind molar progression, also known as marching molars, which I I particularly like that one because there's this idea that they're marching from the back of the jaw towards the front. And the main other extant creatures that have these are the manatees, hmm. which I'll get back to in a bit. And interestingly enough, the manatees have them, but the dugong, uh, the relative of the manatee, does not. Uh, kangaroo molars also apparently work in this fashion. Um, but, uh, but then other creatures, like you, you might look to the rock uh, hyrax, which is a, uh, the elephant's rodent-like relative. But uh, even though it has some elephant-like qualities to its... Uh, uh, to its teeth, including two rodent-like front teeth that are actually tiny tusks, it doesn't have marching molars. Um, but uh, I mentioned already how the elephant molars are also elongated. Uh, they, they, uh, they're really crazy to look at because it, it looks like fused teeth in a sense. It's, it's mm-hmm. like a, a big, long chunk of teeth. And it's uh, essentially, uh, it has enamel loops for grinding plant matter. Yeah. So that's what the elephant's using these for. It's just grinding top t- uh, molars against bottom molars, and, uh, and that is, of course, wearing the teeth down as well. Right. Thus the need to continually replace them. Right. The elephant is a herbivore. It's going to be eating rough plant matter, so it needs sort of a mortar, mortar and pestle in the mouth to, to mash it up real good. Yeah. But again, when the, when the teeth are done, that's it. And this is going to lead, in the wild especially, it's going to lead to malnutrition and or starvation. So I encourage everyone to think about elephant teeth the next time you see an elephant, uh, certainly if you have the chance to see one in the wild, but if you see one in a zoo or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, like its teeth are just or as amazing as any other amazing quality of the elephant. Like, yes, its trunk is a, is a, is a, is a marvel of the natural world, but uh-huh. also its teeth are just so super weird. Yeah, this high-capacity magazine of molars. Yeah, it is. It's like a magazine, a Pez dispenser of teeth. Um, and it's just, it's just not what you come to expect from teeth in general. Like, you know, even, uh, even a shark, right? It continually grows those teeth, but they're growing out of, sort of flipping out of, uh, the jaw, top and bottom. Uh, but the, the elephant has a different system entirely. Now, what is the deal with tusks since we're talking about elephants? Because we, we talked with Katie and we've talked on the show before about the idea of narwhal tusks, how the narwhal tusks are not like modified bones. They are teeth, you know, yeah. their teeth jutting up just straight forward, straight out of the mouth. Yeah, they're, they're modified incisors is the, the deal. Oh, even in elephants? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, so um, so yeah, we, we it, you, it's easy to sort of look at tusks, and even if you know they're not horns, you kind of like think of them. You kind of categorize them in the same uh, in the same area. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, elephants are are weird, wonderful uh, creatures uh, that we've we've been looking at them so long. They're such a famous animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can you know they're in our storybooks as, as as children. They're in our animated films. You kind of forget how weirdly alien they are in many uh, many regards. Is it weird that I'm just imagining now what it would be like to get bitten by an elephant? I I don't know. I I keep thinking, trying to imagine what that would be like to have um, marching molars to mm-hmm. have that kind of dental situation. And granted, we wouldn't because 
we do not need to have that for our diet. Yeah. Uh, but if we did, like, can you imagine your teeth <laughs> growing in from the wimps. back and yeah. then they like breaking off in the front? Also, there are soft foods. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's take one more break. When we come back, I want to talk just a little bit about manatee teeth. Okay. All right, we're back. So we've talked about manatees on the show before. Um, Manateech me something, Robert. <laughs> well, uh, manatees are, of course, marine uh, mammals, and they are sirenians. Uh, uh, they have a few living kin that we'll get to. Oh, sirenians. So are they named after the sirens? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, tying into the whole, uh, you know, mistaking manatees for mermaid thing. Uh-huh. Now, their closest living relatives are the elephants, and they're kind of like the elephants of the sea in some respects, you know, drifting through the waters, feasting on vegetation. There are three uh, extant varieties of manatees. There's the Amazonian manatee, Mm -hmm. the West Indian manatee, and the West African manatee. And all of them have marching molars, uh, much like the elephant. Oh, okay. But then uh, I I was reading around a little bit uh, about this, and there's there's another variety of Serenian that went extinct in the 1800s, and this was Stellar's sea cow. Now, it apparently, uh, this was a a Serenian that uh, already had a rather uh, narrow uh, habitat. It was already, like, you, you could make the argument, I think, that it was already kind of endangered uh, before human activity uh, really uh, put the nail in the casket here. But uh, it actually didn't have true teeth. Uh, it had instead what has been described as broad, horny pads what? that it used to chew the soft parts of kelp, which made up most of its diet. And this leads us to the other uh, existing Serenian. And that's the Eastern Hemisphere's dugong, which looks very similar to a manatee, but it has a shorter snout, which kind of, you often see it in pictures, it looks like a vacuum cleaner, because it's essentially what it is. It's cleaning, it's it's eating off the bottom. Uh, And it also has a fluked tail that looks much like a whale. Uh Um, But then you really have to think about its teeth. So it has no marching molars. It does not have the marching molars of a manatee. Uh, They also have uh, incisors, which are essentially little tusks, uh, which manatees are lacking. But the thing about dugongs is that they also have horny pads in their mouths for chewing. And they're more important than their actual teeth. The cheek teeth are almost non-functioning. And, um, and and are not very tough to begin with. So I was reading a, a few different papers about them from J.M. Uh, Lanyon and G.D. Sanson in the Journal of Zoology. And they point out that regarding dugongs, quote, the soft mouth parts of the dugong are highly modified so that the entire oral cavity functions to crush low-fiber seagrasses. Thus, the dugong has developed an efficient method of food ingestion and mastication that is suited to processing large quantities of soft seagrass during short dive times. The potential cost to the dugong in having lost its hard dental surfaces is that it has become restricted to a low-fiber diet. So this is interesting. The dugong eats mostly seagrass, while manatees, who again have these more robust teeth and have these marching molars, they eat roughly 60 different varieties of fresh and saltwater plants. Um, I, I've, I've read that the, the difference in the snout also means that manatees can sort of re- reach out a little bit uh, uh-huh. because they just have a more varied diet. Yeah. Um, 
manatees have also been observed to occasionally eat fish from nets. Mm. So, you know, we generally think of them as herbivores, and, you know, for the most part, they are. But it seems like if they have the chance to eat a fish out of a net, uh, they will do so. And oh, so, yet another example of opportunistic carnivory. Yeah. Meanwhile, the dugong is apparently not engaging in this uh, in this behavior that we know of. So that would mean that the dugong is really the only true marine herbivore mammal in the world. Huh. The only marine herbivore mammal. Yeah. Wow. So I guess I'm trying to think of counterexamples, but I can't because you know what I – it is – I think of a lot of like filter feeding whales as herbivores and they're not. They're eating, you know, microscopic animals. Yeah, they're carnivores. Yeah. Yeah, we we, we don't think of them as such because they're not trying to eat us. Right. (laughs) I mean – uh, you know, whale myths aside. The animals they eat are very small. It's like, are you a carnivore if you only eat popcorn shrimp? <laughs> Some people might not think so. Right. But but I, I, love, I love this as a kind of a closing example to look at this, as the, you know, the dugong, the manatee, and stellar sea cow as being examples just within the Cyrenian world of how teeth change with diet uh-huh. and how you can have kind of you know, rapidly different, like the idea that you have marching molars in the manatee and stellar sea cow didn't have teeth at all. And then the dugong is kind of in this place in between the two. Uh, I, I just find that fascinating. And and again, any, t- any chance I have to explain how cool manatees are, uh, I've got to take it because and manatees are just amazing creatures. And if you, you have the chance to see some in the wild, you should definitely do so. I got to see some just the other week. I was down at... Uh, uh, down in Florida at, uh, what is it, oh, Wakula, or I've also heard it, uh, Wakula Springs. Uh, got to see multiple manatees, some baby manatees. It was breathtaking. Now, the same way that the manatee and the dugong may have inspired the legends of the mermaid, mm-hmm. did the manatees of Wakula Springs inspire the creature of the Black Lagoon? No. They, or they creature did, from the Black Lagoon, sorry. <laughs> they, they did film some some scenes there, uh-huh. um, mainly like the, you know, just the, the swamp footage is uh, the, the stuff that they filmed there at the springs. Uh-huh. Yeah. But they, weren't you telling me, like, they can't do – licensed uh, stuff, like they can't actually yeah. have creature materials there. Or at least I, I think maybe uh, maybe they're not willing, you know, they're not willing or able to pay out for it, the uh-huh. licensing fees. I'm not privy to the details. But I just know that a few years ago they had some creature memorabilia there and now there's not any. But they were showing Creature from the Black Lagoon one evening in the lobby. And so that was kind of cool to have gone out on the swamp during the day and then at night like to see this old movie and see these scenes from it. Uh, and it's like, oh, well, th- there you go. I went by there in a boat uh, just a f- several hours ago. Uh-huh. I think we've established on this show that we're firmly on the side of the creature in the creature oh, yes. from the Black Lagoon and that the heroes are awful. Yes. The, the, <laughs> so the, the alleged scientists in that, in that show are, are, are awful. There's a life form. Shoot it. <laughs> Luckily, those are not the scientists that are involved in, uh, in taking care of manatees uh, today. Hey, folks, if we suddenly sound different, we just jumped into another space and time. Uh, So here we are again. I just wanted to close out with another quick grab bag of teeth-related stuff that I couldn't stop thinking about. Robert, you remember at the end of our episode with Katie where goose teeth came up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, of course, uh, geese can sometimes – I didn't mean to demonize geese, by the way, when talking to Katie. But geese can be surprisingly aggressive, I think. Uh, We don't usually – worry about birds getting territorial and attacking us. But if you get too close to a goose nest, uh, you're, you're asking for trouble. Right. Yeah, they're they're more fierce than we sometimes realize. They're also a little smarter than we sometimes realize. They're, like, they're certainly no, no corvids, 
But there have been some interesting studies that have uh, you know, put them to the test with, uh, with various tasks, and they can actually perform well. Yeah, and so I think in that episode with Katie, we actually talked a little bit about goose teeth. Now, goose don't actually have biological teeth with dentin and enamel. Uh, but if you have not seen an image of the serrated edges of death writhing like the deadlights inside a goose mouth, you have got to go search for this right now. It, it, it's an image that you must see. There are a bunch of them all over the internet. Uh, Robert, I added one to your notes, but I oh, you might not have your notes right in front of you, do you? I do not. Well, it's just got knives in the mouth, basically, <laughs> along the edge of the – so basically like the tongue and the beak are both covered in these fierce, jagged, sawtooth spines around the lateral edges. And um, the most recent evidence indicates that existing birds descend from ancestors that lost their teeth in a multi-stage process that took place roughly between, I think, about 116 and 101 million years ago. Um, so if you're out there, listener, asking, wait a minute, lost their teeth, birds lost their teeth? Yes, because as we've talked about plenty of times, birds evolved from dinosaurs that definitely had teeth, archosaurs. Uh, uh, Archaeopteryx had teeth. Mm -hmm. And it, it appears that this period around 100 million years ago, they acquired gene mutations that changed a couple things. They changed jaw development to stop the development of teeth uh, as, as they matured and to cause the development of beaks instead. And one consequence of this knowledge is that if we can suppress the molecular pathways for the gene that suppresses the growth of teeth in birds, you know, the gene that turns off tooth development, you, you turn off the turn off there, we can sort of create birds with teeth again. And in fact, a group of researchers actually did this and, and published their findings in Current Biology way back in 2006. Uh, you've probably... I bet this has come up on the show before, at least maybe a while ago, right? Oh, this is the, uh, the the transforming of chickens into uh, tiny dinosaurs. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, they already are tiny dinosaurs they, in their own respect. But. They are very much tyrannosauruses. But in this case, I think the resemblance is slightly less to the theropod dinosaurs and more to crocodilians mm -hmm. because uh, when they made a couple of genetic tweaks or epigenetic tweaks to embryonic chickens, the embryos grew teeth that resembled the conical teeth you would see in the mouth of an alligator or crocodile, indicating that these were probably pretty similar to the teeth of ancestral birds more than 100 million years ago. So the goose does not have true teeth, but I wonder if you could crisper up like a really awful fanged crocodile goose from the deep past. I, <laughs> I bet that could be done, though I don't know if it would survive uh, development with the mutation. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But, uh, but I do love this example because it kind of goes back to what we were exploring with the Cyrenians, mm -hmm. that if if teeth are no longer needed, if they are no longer the best means of uh, masticating food or, or, or helping to, you know, to aid in the ingestion of food, they're not going to stay around forever. I mean, they're, they're, they're like anything in, in the body. They are, they are a costly investment. Yeah, the, this is one of the things that, uh, that we often fail to remember when we think about evolution uh, without taking like energy and development concerns in mind. We, we think of evolution primarily as a process of addition. But uh, what episode was it just recently on the show where we uh, talked about a lot of subtraction evolution? Oh, I think it was in the one about the, uh, survival the, the phrase fittest. survival yes. of the mm -hmm. fittest. Yeah, and what that it tends to imply to people who, you know, uh, if, if you haven't thought about it all that deeply, one thing is that you, you get this – 
sort of vague impression that maybe it always works by like adding new powers and not by just subtracting things that are useless expenses. Right. And we also, yeah, I think discussed, as we've discussed before, that this whole idea of something devolving, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, no, evolution uh, you know, can, can go in either direction. Yeah. So if you say your views on a topic have evolved, that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. <laughs> it's like if, you're, uh, if your HR department tells you that your benefits are evolving, not necessarily a good thing. Right. Um, ask more questions to find out exactly what's going on. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, there is no devolving. It's all evolving. So some evolving you might like and some evolving you might yeah. not like. Uh, who knows? I mean, maybe we could evolve uh, brains that just feel excruciating pain every moment of the day for no good reason at all. It just yeah. <laughs> happens to work that way. Um, but another uh, an interesting uh, evolutionary question is why did birds lose their teeth? And this is an unsolved problem. We, we don't have a good answer of exactly what the evolutionary pressure driving the switch from teeth to beaks was. Mm. Uh, the answer – so one historical hypothesis I've read about is that it helped birds lighten their bodies to optimize flight dynamics. But I've also read opinions that's not a very good explanation because, you know, we see tons of flying animals with teeth. Teeth mm-hmm. don't necessarily weigh a whole lot. Uh, that, that seems like that's probably not a very good candidate for explaining it. So we don't fully know the answer. I mean, one would assume it would, you know, it would come down to diet one way or another, but – yeah, you would think so. I mean, and one thing you can look at is the different kinds of beaks that existing birds have. I mean, mm-hmm. beak diversity is is enormous across the avians. They use oh, yeah. their beaks for all kinds of different things. We should come back and do an episode on beaks. Just on yeah. beaks, yes. Yeah. We, and we can also talk about the movie Beaks, which is maybe the most painful bad horror movie I've ever watched. There Literally, is a movie called Beaks? Yeah, it's a ripoff of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it's just about birds attacking people. That, that's, that's pretty much all you need to know, except... It just happens to have this distinction. And you know me. I'm somebody who watches tons of bad horror movies. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most excruciating one I ever tried to finish. So th- would you say this is worse than Birdemic? Oh, yeah, yeah, No, Birdemic is a joy by comparison. <laughs> I'm not saying it's – I'm not saying it's worse from a filmmaking skill point of view. But Birdemic was much more enjoyable and it was easy to make it through the runtime. Beaks is a film – that uh, one of the thing one of the things I think about it is that it has a soundtrack with like a really uh, just grating synthesizer score that has song. They're not really songs. It's like a single, a very high pitch synthesizer note held down for minutes at a time mm-hmm. that starts to just wear on you as if you you think you have something wrong with your ears or your brain. Uh, it's like a it's a soundtrack that mimics tinnitus or something, hmm. and it's just really ugly to watch. Yeah. Anyway, we got sidetracked, but yes, I think we should come back do an episode on beaks because yeah, beak diversity is is amazing, and and so I guess that brings us back to the actual goose mouth, the serrated edges inside there along the tongue, along the beak edges. If those aren't teeth, what's going on there with those little jagged spines? Uh, so the serrated edges in a modern bird's beak. Uh, that that's made of stuff called tomium. These are these little spiny cutting edges that can be used kind of like teeth, but from what I've read, they're they're not usually for what we would think of as chewing. They're more for grabbing hold of food like plant matter or like live prey and either cutting it or gripping it firmly so that the bird can like keep hold of it and tear it away from anything it's attached to. Mm. Uh, so you, you can see this for like uh, – 
you know, anything that would be eating like plant matter and trying to tear it away from whatever, like the stem or something. Right. Or you can see it for grabbing hold of a fish and making sure it doesn't get away. It's just generally useful for like hooking stuff into the mouth and, of course, and for cutting. Um, and for, for a bonus in bird relatives that also lost their teeth, if you haven't looked at this – you should check out the mouths of leatherback sea turtles. Have you oh. seen this one, Robert? I don't know that I have. I mean, oh. I've seen leatherback sea turtles before, uh, but in the wild, but the, but I didn't get a good look in their mouths. Well, actually, I think with Katie, we were talking about some viral images of animal mouths that mm-hmm. you think like, okay, that's got to be photoshopped, but actually it turns out to be totally real. Mm-hmm. Leatherback sea turtle mouths are like this. Oh, okay. Uh, they, they, they're, some of the photos of them make the rounds on the internet and it looks like a made-up monster mouth that somebody is passing off as a fake real animal. It's totally real. It looks like a, a vivid, you know, somebody took the bad acid nightmare of – it's <laughs> – Hard to explain because oh, it these does, are the ones that they, they look – they're swirly looking, right? Kind of. Yeah. yeah they don't uh, – so it's not rows of teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, again, they're turtles. They don't have teeth, but they are these thorns. It's like a thorn forest. Imagine a sort of fractal sarlacc on steroids oh, yes. with even more teeth. This, this forest of thorns going down the esophagus. And what this actually is, it's not teeth, but it's a covering of cartilage-based prongs that are known as esophageal papillae, which uh, that what they do is they help the leatherback sea turtle hold on to its prey, which primarily consists of jellyfish. So imagine you're trying to eat a jellyfish, this organism that's kind of squishy and mostly made of water, mm-hmm. in the water. Uh, you might imagine that it's kind of hard to like get that in the mouth and keep it from slipping out of the mouth, especially if you're trying to like eject seawater back out of the mouth mm-hmm. while you're eating it and then to shove it along down through the esophagus. And apparently the sea turtles have these uh, long digestive tracts that can hold a whole bunch of jellyfish in them all at the same time while they're sort of waiting to be processed by the stomach. So, yeah, this thorn forest in the mouth is mainly for grabbing hold of these gelatinous masses of prey and holding them in place so that they don't slip away. But again, another example of it's not teeth, but they fu- they fulfill some of the purposes that we associate with teeth. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. If if teeth did not exist, uh, they, they would evolve. Be necessary to invent them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fun, Robert. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, we again, we only covered so many teeth. There, there are other amazing examples out there. And if anyone listening can think of uh, some really good ones, you know. Uh, let us know because we could always come back and do another sack full of teeth on this show. <laughs> and, I, and I would love to do beaks. I, I was get, I was up close and personal with a, a toucan the other day. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it's just always amazing to look at a, at a beak like that. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to go through the world of beaks. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find them. You'll find uh, various links there as well. Uh, and, hey, if you want to support the show, about the best thing you can do is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And make sure that you have subscribed to uh, not only Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but also our other show, Invention. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Seth Nicholas Johnson and Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.